This is the McKinsey Podcast, where we help you make sense out of our world's toughest business challenges. Welcome to the show. I'm Lucia Rahili. And I'm Roberta Fasaro. My encouragement to leaders at this point is don't explain away why there must be good reason for this, that, and the other. Use the data, dig in, and really commit to working the issue the way you'd work a sales pipeline or an operational issue or, you know, a a growth opportunity with intensity and conviction that you're just going to keep going until you get it right. That's senior partner Alexis Krivkovich. Getting it right in this case means homing in on long-standing workplace inadequacies to support women's advancement. Alexis joins me and senior partner Lorena Yee to talk about our recent research on women in the workplace. Lorena, Alexis, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. And congratulations on the latest Women in the Workplace report. This report begins by debunking several myths about women's workplace experiences. And I want to start with the first myth, which I found really fascinating. It's that women are becoming less ambitious. Ambition has long been kind of a charged construct for women, in part because it used to be used in an almost pejorative way. What did the research tell us about women and ambition? Alexis, let's start with you. I agree. I think ambition is one of the most interesting insights from this year. What we see from the data clearly is that the pandemic didn't dampen women's ambition. In fact, it grew through that period. 80% of women want to be promoted. That's the exact same as what we see for men. And that's up 10 percentage points from where we were pre-pandemic. And nearly every single woman that we survey, 96% say their career is important to them. That's incredible. And if you look at that for younger women who are just starting their careers, women under 30 want to be promoted even more. Nine out of 10 of them want to get promoted and three out of four want to get all the way to the very top. And that ambition is highest among women of color. So we've got all this great talent that's incredibly interested in moving ahead. And through the pandemic, that interest and focus has only grown. And do we have a sense of why ambition was kind of buoyed up during the pandemic and particularly why among intersectional women? I think one aspect through this moment is that the introduction of more flexibility in the working model something that the pandemic sort of forced on us, but now coming out the other side, every employee wants to see as part of the permanent state, that's really unleashed and enabled more ambition for women in particular. And I think that's incredibly exciting to see because without flexibility, we believe women's attrition could have been 30% higher through this period. And so having a working model that allows more of that inside the same kind of scope of work and expectation is just allowing women to feel like they can do so much more. Before we move on, Lorena, do you have anything to add there? Our research looks over the last nine years, and 
in every year that we've looked at women in the workplace, we show that women have that ambition and drive to be leaders in their organizations. That something that Alexis and I will call positive ambition. In some ways, you can look at this year's data as as we have fully come out of the pandemic and we have a different working model and we're back to some of our norms. It's no surprise, in fact, actually, that you see women's ambition pop back up because it's always been high. Do you think women are less inhibited about articulating that they're ambitious? It there was this period where women's ambition was kind of viewed as a almost like a criticism, right? People would say, oh, she's so ambitious. Well, Lucia, I would put that back as why we frame this as a myth. It's a myth. I don't think it's actually about women. It may be more your common or reflection of society and perhaps a misunderstanding or a misperception that ambition next to women is something negative, whereas ambition next to a man is something positive. In fact, actually, that ambition is the same. As Alexis said, the ambition to be a leader, to be promoted is the same among men and women. Okay, so let's segue now to that second myth that Alexis teed up, that it is primarily women who are looking for flexibility in the workplace. And here's a reading of a quote from one of our research interviews. It comes from a white man at the director level who works in a hybrid context. Our house is crazy. We have a dog and four kids. Being able to juggle all that's going on in my personal life by having flexibility at work, it's extremely important. What does the research tell us about the way gender affects preference for flexibility? The power of that quote is that type of pressure, that type of feeling is the same for men and women. Flexibility helps everybody. I completely agree, Lorena. And the other thing I think is quite interesting about this debate around increasing flexibility in the working model is that 80% of men and women say they feel most productive when they have that focused time and can can do some amount of that by working remote. That doesn't mean they don't see the value in coming in person. In fact, Gen Z, more than anyone, says they recognize that you got to get into a space, interact with colleagues to get some of the biggest benefits of mentorship and sponsorship and you know learning and observing how the job is done, being part of and contributing to building a culture. But it's worth recognizing that this idea that there's a loss by embracing this flexibility, I think that's a I think that's a false choice. It's also helpful to say that flexibility doesn't mean that I work from home. That's maybe one format of flexibility. Flexibility may be the ability to shift your hours. Flexibility may be to have your Fridays from your apartment and your Monday through Thursdays in the office. It may be that you know, in the summers, you're in different cities. I think the core of flexibility is that employees have more control and more agency in when they work, how they work, and that you're focused on the output, not necessarily clocking in from eight to five to prove that you're actually productive. So I think this is a really interesting point that flexibility is broader than working from home and hybrid. Many leaders are now pushing, obviously, for employees to be in the office more frequently. Whether that takes hold or not, 
remains TBD, but there seems to be a trend toward more in-office work. You've said that 36% or more than a third of women say they would have had to have taken a step back had they not had the flexibility that they had. You know, it's a funny thing. I think for so many companies right now, we're kind of caught betwixt and between. And as a result, as we start pushing for more return to office, which makes sense for a lot of reasons to have, you know, some of that in-person collaboration. So many employees are feeling frustrated because they say, you know, I commute to the office to work remote. Like we haven't changed anything about what's happening when I show up in person to make it feel different or beneficial in a way that working from home clearly has some benefits, saving commute time, focused work time. So if I come in, I really want to feel like I get the best of it. And I think that will be one of the big questions for for companies looking forward. And as they do that, how do you do it in a way where it continues to be equitable? Because the reality is the workplace in-person environment wasn't equally enjoyable to men and women previously. And we see in our data, it's still not. Men still describe a better experience when they show up on site than women do in terms of getting kind of connectivity, feeling in the know, um, building their network. And that's something that needs to change. Hang on, that's really interesting. Can you say more about what is driving that delta between men and women's experience in the office? Well, as an example, right, you know, a third of men will say that they feel like they get better and more useful feedback when they show up in person. But less than a quarter of women would agree with that statement. And that's an example of the type of difference we've long seen in the full nine years we've looked at this question that, you know, men get better coaching, men get better mentorship and support. The feedback they receive is more actionable than women. And so we're telling people come back in because you're going to get more of these things. But then if we perpetuate not making those benefits be ones that are experienced equally, I think it will just create kind of a bifurcated path where men start to see a value in something that women don't and you know and women ultimately lose out because of it. Let's talk about the third myth, which is that the biggest barrier to women's advancement is that proverbial glass ceiling. Here's a reading of a quote from a C-suite level black woman working hybrid. I've always done every task, every project ahead of schedule and under budget. And I still couldn't get the promotions I saw my white colleagues getting. What did the data tell us about what's at play in situations like this one? What is really holding women back? Well, it's incredibly frustrating the degree to which this is such a persistent phenomenon. But what we see is that the biggest inequity in advancement remains the broken rung. And the broken rung is the very first step up into manager position. And in that instance, proportionally for every 100 men that we see leap forward, only 87 women do. And if you're a woman of color, like the woman quoted, it's 73. But in fact, if you're a black woman, it's only 54. And it starts at the very beginning of the career. And the challenge with that is that sets up a whole pathway that is slower and harder to progress forward. And companies just don't don't recover from that. And that's what you see in the pipeline. By the time you get to the top, 
the reason we only have 28% women in the C-suite is because we weren't building that leadership path at the very beginning of the careers to create a pool of talent that was then available and ready for those opportunities when they open up. Which I'd love to offer a ray of hope and despair at the same time. So when we looked at the experience in the broken rung of Black women, one of the things that we saw was the year after George Floyd, for the following two years, we actually saw that the broken rung for Black women, that first promotion Alexis talked about, that gap almost closed completely. So the reason I mention that is it's a ray of hope because when we focus, when we measure, we improve. Unfortunately, a bit of the pit of despair is that this year, the data slumped back down. And so I think one of the really important things is that we can improve the broken rung. It really requires a level of focus and measurement. What else is causing it to be so persistent? What what gives with this broken rung? We talk about it every year, but generally, what can be done here that's different? You know, I think we just need more discipline in managing these early promotions and treating them with the same care that we put towards our most senior openings and opportunities. So like, have we really thought about the criteria for ready now for early promotions? A lot of times that criteria is based on the people who've sat in the seat before you. We don't encourage a diverse slate to apply. We just kind of see who raises their hand. And so a lot of companies find they're just sort of on the receiving end of who feels confident enough. And when women don't have the same degree of mentorship and sponsorship and support, you know, they don't feel confident enough to go for it. Right. To your point, Alexis, we've talked in the past about women having to be over-prepared in order to put themselves forward for promotion, statistically speaking, whereas men are more likely to put themselves forward when they are under-prepared relative to women. Anything on changes at other levels of the ladder, any positive or negative signs versus last year higher up beyond the first rung? Well, the biggest bright spot in this year was the success we're finally seeing all the way at the top in the C-suite. It's taken us nine years to get there. That's great. <laughs> but we moved from less than one in six women in the C-suite to more than one in four. The challenge behind that is it hasn't been equally shared for women of color for all the reasons we've talked about. And so that one in four for women overall is only one in 16 if you're a woman of color. So you don't yet see yourself represented in the majority of companies' top leadership teams. That's a huge Mm -hmm. problem. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And those seats aren't filled equally across all role types. So you're more likely to see those women at the very top sitting in critically important staff roles like HR, uh, head of strategy chief marketing officer, really important, very valuable, but you don't see them equally as the chief technology officer, the CFO, the head of the business units, the COO. And part of why that matters is one set of those roles tends to have more budget associated with it, more employees under the remit, 
um, and is more likely to ladder to CEO positions and board seats. And so we need to get that representation now more equally shared for all women and more equally shared across all roles at the top. Last myth relates to microaggressions and specifically to the notion that microaggressions just aren't that big a deal. Here's a reading of a quote from a Latina manager. When I was climbing the ladder to executive director, I felt that the only way I could be successful was to do everything I possibly could to assimilate. I would watch how the white female leaders would dress, how they would communicate, how they would interact. I felt I needed to look like that, sound like that, and model that. What did our research tell us about the impact of microaggressions on women at work? Microaggressions are those everyday slights. And on the face of it, I think a lot of people will say, oh, well, that was just one comment that was a little bit off. Oh, well, you know, that person didn't really mean it. But I think what's really important is to understand that a basket of microaggressions have macro impact on a woman's career. And so let's kind of frame what that is. Women are 1.5 to 2x more likely to experience a microaggression than men. What are examples of microaggressions? Examples are things like being mistaken for someone of the same color or hair color as being two women of this, of, you know, being mistaken. It could be a manager not defending your work. There are a series of these things that happen. They often happen multiple times a day, multiple times a week. The second piece is what's the impact of that? And one of the things and the behaviors that we looked at this year is how women who experience microaggressions will self-shield they'll self-shield to protect themselves from these types of slights that happened. And they are 3.3 times more likely to consider leaving their organization. And they are 4.2 times more likely to feel burned out. You know, one of the things that you often hear when you talk to women is what is the experience like? And, you know, it's almost like an unexpected missile in the meeting. You're sitting there, you're presenting, you're focused on the business and all the preparation you did. And all of the sudden, someone takes credit for your idea. And maybe later in that meeting, somebody else says, oh, I, 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 didn't, I didn't realize, you know, you don't look like you could possibly be a VP. And what you're trying to do is just deliver on the work. And what happens is you tend to have a simultaneous feeling of, of A, being you know, a bit of an imposter syndrome moment, but also B, feeling like you have to show the positive stereotypes of your gender or if you're a woman of color, your race. So how do we fix the system and create more awareness so that that doesn't happen? And one of the actions we've talked a lot about is allyship. Because when those things happen, that unexpected missile in the meeting, one of the best things that a colleague, a man or woman can do is redirect that microaggression. Alexis, has remote work affected the prevalence of microaggressions at all, either positively or negatively? We've talked about some of the benefits and some of the disadvantages of remote work. How has it affected microaggressions? Yeah, if you net it out, you know, most women, particularly women who face higher microaggressions, so intersectional, women with intersectional experiences, women of color, those with disability, LGBTQ+, they will say that those microaggressions go down when they work virtually. 
And so some amount of a hybrid work experience eases their challenges in with facing these headwinds. And I think there's some pretty obvious you know, reasons why that would be true. So everybody can have a virtual seat at the table when you have a remote meeting. Everybody shows up the same size on the screen. You can use tools like the hand raise to create more balance in meeting discussion. And so there is something about, you know, the the future state of flex that has the potential to create more balance for women's experiences. I think we've all been in situations where we've experienced microaggressions. Any personal anecdotes that you might share for the benefit of others on a microaggression that you have been the object of and how you managed it? You know, recently I was asked to present at a conference. It was an intimate group of 40 to 50 leaders. And I stepped into the room and I realized I was the only woman, which happens to me less and less, thankfully, but every once in a while, I have a moment where I think, oh my gosh, I can't believe this. And I was standing to the side because I was waiting you know, to be introduced. Someone else was doing some pre-speaking to kick things off. And they were having issues with the, the sound um, in this person's microphone. And out of the blue, he turned to me and said, could you please get me a new microphone? And I was so stunned because I thought, well, I'm a senior partner at McKinsey. I don't know where the microphones are here. (laughs) But what was so shocking to me is how quickly I felt embarrassed and how quickly I felt undermined in my right to be there, my credibility to be speaking and commanding the room. And it wasn't about intent. Right. I don't think he was singling me out and thinking actively, there's the woman. I will make the woman do this. But the fact that it was his default just it, like it just took the wind out of me uh, from a confidence standpoint. It doesn't have to be, well, it wasn't intentional. It's that you undermine someone's ability to show up as their best self, you undermine their confidence and their belief that they do have a reason to be at the table. You do want to hear their independent perspective. I mean, nearly a third of women will say they don't speak up or share an opinion because they don't want to appear difficult or you know, contrary to the discussion in the room because they feel like it'll single them out. Absolutely. Now let's talk about next steps. It can sometimes feel like we have been circling in this same cul-de-sac for a long time. It can be pretty frustrating. What is your best advice for leaders who are looking finally to kind of put the pedal to the metal here? My encouragement to leaders at this point is, you know, don't get comfortable in the aggregate numbers. Don't explain away why there must be good reason for this, that, and the other. Use the data, dig in, and really commit to working the issue the way you'd work a sales pipeline or an operational issue or you know a, a growth opportunity with intensity and conviction that you're just going to keep going until you get it right. I mean, with a broken rung, you can measure it. You can see where it's happening, team by team, promotion by promotion. Get in there, go back, do the postmortem. When I get in and I ask companies about it, when I see the issue in their data, they'll generally admit 
at best, they're doing that in a haphazard way. And at worst, they're kind of stopping at the problem statement. If there were one piece of advice you'd give to young women who are coming up in their career now, junior women, what would it be? Oh, that's hard. <laughs> um, all right. Well, <laughs> as someone who has three daughters, I think about this question quite mm-hmm. a bit. Um, I think it would be twofold. Uh, first, don't look at the pattern at the top and think that's any signal of your skills and ability to be sitting there in one of those seats. Um, We will only get change if we continue to stick with it and persist. And the second one is to use the data and the fact base we now have to challenge the structural obstacles you see, the bias in the system when it presents itself. I think too often we allow things to be explained away, but pushing and challenging organizations to really look at the situation. Okay, you passed me over and you said it's because I didn't have X. How do I get X? What What's the opportunity that you suggest I pursue to get X? Did the person you chose, did they have that? How did they get it? How do I get the opportunity that you've helped create for them? I think we've got to ask those tough questions and keep the keep the pressure on. Alexis, Lorena, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much for listening to the McKinsey Podcast. I'm Lucia Rahili. And I'm Roberta Fasaro. Find us on McKinsey.com. We'll have a transcript of this episode up shortly. And download the McKinsey Insights app, where you can find this podcast and other helpful content updated daily. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love for you to leave a rating and a review. We'll see you in two weeks.